Welcome to MuggleCast, your weekly basilisk ride into the Wizarding World fandom. I'm Andrew. I'm Micah. And I'm Maura. Eric couldn't join us this week. Something came up, but he will be back next week. But luckily, we had been planning on having one of our Slug Club supporters on this week. And here she is now in the Eric seat, let's say. Alyssa, welcome to the show. Thank you. I'm so happy to be here. So excited. Pleasure to have you on. She came prepared with not just notes, of course, but the Snape shirt, a a classic Hot Topic Snape shirt. (laughs) And your framing is good right now because we just see Snape's head. Perfect. (laughs) That's all I need. That's all I need is Alan Rickman's face. Today we are going to discuss chapters 9 and 10 of Chamber of Secrets in our chapter by chapter series. But first, Alyssa, let's get your fandom ID. All right. So my favorite book is Half-Blood Prince. My favorite movie is Prisoner of Azkaban. My Hogwarts house is Hufflepuff. My Overmorning house, I can't remember. I think it's Horn Serpent or Pugwudgie. And my Patronus is an Oryx. And my favorite chapter across any of the books, I struggled, but I think it might be Creature's Tale. Oh, that's yeah. a good choice. Thank you. Thank you. <laughs> and uh, I think Eric would be thrilled to know that you are your favorite movie is Prisoner of Azkaban, because I think that is his, his as well. It's no. his least favorite. Oh, that's his least? I thought that was I his think most. it's his least favorite, but it's, it's his, his favorite, favorite book. book. Yeah. Oh. Yeah. Which is why it's his least favorite movie. But she is a Hufflepuff. I am a Hufflepuff. So at least there's someone to represent the Hufflepuffs today. Yeah. Again, in the Eric seat. And clearly, you know Eric better than I do, which is a little <laughs> embarrassing. So. <laughs> Only, only surface level. I'm sure you know more. (laughs) Anyway, uh, good to have you here. And thanks for your support on Patreon. We really appreciate it. Thank you. Thank you. Of course. I'm glad to be here. Cool. So without further ado, why don't we just jump straight into chapter by chapter today, Laura? Yeah, we're going to kick things off with chapter nine, the writing on the wall. And Andrew, you're going to kick us off with our seven word summary. Who I think I had set up Eric to do this, yep. and now the pressure's <laughs> on me in terms of the first word. I changed it. No, you troll. Here we go. Filch. Scares. Harry. Because. He's. Acting. Accusatory. I thought I really ruined it with that he's, so good job, <laughs> Alyssa and Laura. <laughs> we pulled it through. We did. <laughs> Team effort. Well, picking up where we left off last week, our heroes are at the scene of the crime. And to answer a question that we had asked in last week's episode, why does Draco get away with saying mudblood in front of all of his peers? And it seems like there are no consequences. Well, it turns out that Filch is the first person to arrive at the scene. And I think we can all agree that this is not something Filch would reprimand a student for. However, unfortunately for Filch, he's arriving to a pretty gruesome scene, right? Mrs. Norris is hanging from um, one of the uh, lanterns, the wall lanterns, by her tail. And at this point, she appears to be dead. So we're going to be talking about, as a first part of this chapter, who did it? Because that is a pretty big chunk of the conversation that happens here. And we can start with Lockhart. He is 
animatedly going on and on about his prognosis for Mrs. Norris. He thinks she's dead. Um, and he's listing off all of his various other stolen experiences to bolster the argument. But meanwhile, Dumbledore, McGonagall, and Snape just kind of let him go off while they examine her. Yeah. It's like they know. <laughs> it's almost like when when you're a little kid and you're babbling about something and the adults in the room are just letting you go. Yeah. But they're not saying anything to correct or like, you know, influence you to, you know, shut up. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> yeah. And you're not paying attention to them at all. Yeah, that's a good analogy. We may do that on the show sometimes, too. <laughs> Yikes. Just got a little real. Wow. Uh, <laughs> no. The tea. Laura, though, Dumbledore does know. If we go back to the biography that we got on Lockhart from Pottermore. That's right. He was very well aware of the fact that he was hiring a fraud into this position. So I think that he is just kind of letting him do his thing and not really pay that much attention to him. Yeah, he's literally giving him enough rope to hang himself metaphorically here. I also found it interesting that when everybody's congregating, the self-portraits in Lockhart's office are, quote, dodging out of sight. I feel like it's symbolic of what real Lockhart should be doing, but isn't. I don't know if there was any like tie there, any nod there, maybe a little hint to what should be happening. I don't know. Did that strike y'all as interesting? Why were the Lockhart portraits running? Sometimes I feel like the portraits are more of an accurate representation of like Lockhart, like not actually knowing what he's doing. And so they're dodging out of the way because they don't actually know what's going on. <laughs> okay. All right. Yeah, I think that's true, too. And for an added layer here, we see that some of the portraits have their hair in rollers. They're like clearly dressed for sleep. So I think it speaks to Lockhart's vanity, too, because they're dashing to get out of the frames, probably in part due to not being quote unquote presentable. Mm -hmm. So we find out um, that Mrs. Norris is, in fact, not dead. Um, thank you, Dumbledore. But she is petrified. And Filch immediately jumps to the assertion that Harry is the one who attacked her. And he adds on that he attacked her because he knows that I'm a squib. He saw my quick spell paperwork in my office. He knows I'm a squib. He attacked her. He's the one who did it. So when that was brought up, I always wanted to know if it has ever been like discussed either between on the show or anything, if Mrs. Norris was just in the wrong place at the wrong time, or if we ever thought that Filch was intended to be the first target since he is a squib. That mm. you know, since he like he thinks that Mrs. Norris was attacked because he's a squib, was that intentional or not? That's a really good question. I never thought of it that way. I always thought of it as, you know, just wrong place, wrong time. Yeah. But we know that the basilisk clearly seeks out people of muggle parentage. So why would it treat a squib any differently? And there does, like, we never get an answer to this, but there is some sort of, like, beacon Mrs. Norris represents for Filch because wherever one of them is, the other isn't far behind. So I think we could even assume here that Filch wasn't that far away from the scene when it happened. That's a great point. I was thinking two different things about this. Uh, the first is that 
maybe Mrs. Norris is just a bit of a trial run. Oh. And I don't mean to look at it from the standpoint of Mrs. Norris being an animal, but she's a cat. And maybe seeing just how effective the basilisk is after all this time would be easier to do with a non-human than a human. The other thing that came to mind when we were talking about Filch potentially being the target is we know that Mrs. Norris is a bit of an alarm system throughout Hogwarts. So I wonder if it's kind of a strategic move on the part of Tom Riddle to take out something that's always going to be kind of lurking around for trouble. To eliminate a potential threat, you're saying, or the alarm system in your words. Right, because then Mrs. Norris would be around all the time. You know, she's always chasing after Harry for doing something wrong and, and other students. So I wondered if, in fact, maybe this was a way for Tom, Ginny, the basilisk to eliminate a, a consistent threat to what they're trying to do in the school. That's so interesting. Yeah. It's, I've never thought about it that way before, but it's... It's an interesting strategic choice, and it's it's almost like playing chess a little bit, right? Yeah. Which, I mean, chess is a pretty um, important um, piece of symbolism that we see throughout the books, right? So I love that comparison. Alyssa, thank you for getting us thinking about this. I didn't even think of it until I was reading the chapter again, and just seeing, like, seeing, like, and in the notes, like, you know, emphasizing that Filch thinks it's because he's a squib. And then it made me think, hmm, interesting. So that's really only because I reread it. So it is an interesting point. And I also think that Micah's idea definitely is, could be argued for sure. When you work your way up to each one has more and more of an impact. If you start with your biggest petrification and then go down like it doesn't have as much of an impact but if you start with mrs norris that's shocking oh my gosh what what's going on then colin creevy whoa now it's a human like what's next i think the progression makes it scarier too this this purposeful order it's important to note here too the basilisk isn't looking for petrification it's looking to kill it's just lucky that all of these individuals happen to be petrified instead of dead which probably would have been too much for the second book in a children's series at the time. Yeah. I guess about, you know, this loophole with the basilisk when it comes to being becoming petrified as opposed to being killed. You could call it a feature, not a bug. Mm, yep. Maybe. <laughs> One of my favorite phrases of the last year. <laughs> yep. <laughs> well, let's talk about Filch being a squib here for a moment. A little bit later on, we see that Ron, he kind of regresses a little bit here because in the last chapter, he is a staunch defender of Muggleborns and he's saying and doing all the right things. Remember last week I was complaining about how they gave all of those wonderful lines to Hermione in the movie, but here he laughs about Filch being a squib and he says, oh no, it's it's really not funny. But it kind of is because it's Filch. Yeah. So it's funny because we don't like Filch. Right. And I was I was a little disappointed in Ron in this moment. Obviously, he learns and grows from it. Um, but it does highlight that you can still be, you know, overall a good person. And 
you know, speak out in defense of people and speak out in defense of the right thing, but you can still carry unconscious bias and it still manifests. So we see that here with Ron. Yeah, and and Filch has just been treating them poorly and the students on a whole poorly. So that's why he's laughing at Filch being a squib. I actually don't blame Ron here for having this feeling because it's, I don't know, it just feels good to know that he's not as cool as he thought he was. Yeah, this is also just coming off him having accused Harry of doing something terrible to Mrs. Norris. And so I think Ron's just reacting in the moment. Yeah, because to your point, Laura, he does do a little bit of an about face and say, well, it's not really that funny. He has an understanding of what a squib is. And I, I think his mindset as we move forward would be different than somebody like Draco's who probably would continuously hold that over Filch's head. And right. I'm actually surprised a little bit that more people don't know this about Filch because clearly he's been at the school for a long time. You'd think the older students would know this about him because just from the fact that you don't see him do magic at all, right? He's always doing kind of the manual labor side of things. He's never using a wand. He's never using magic to clean things up around the castle. So I would think that maybe there's students who have had a hunch about Filch being a squib before this and I wonder about Fred and George just knowing how misbehaved they are at times. So yeah, maybe they just never see Filch enough to really think about it much. Like, oh, yeah, he's cleaning with a broom right now or wiping down the trophies. They don't see him enough to really put the pieces together. Maybe they also just assume he's an old fashioned guy. Maybe he's like Arthur and is interested in the muggle technology. Yeah, I think also, Alyssa, I think you have a point that digs in a little deeper when it comes to what the wizarding world's attitude is towards squibs. Yeah. So, and I think someone in the discord also just brought it up too, about how um, they said, I wonder if it's more acceptable to express prejudice towards squibs than muggleborns in the wizarding world. And um, that's kind of exactly what my point was. These muggleborns are ostracized, especially like starting at this book about their blood status, but I think that Ron's attitude is showing like a deeper and more nuanced and of a nuanced view of squibs in their world. And like Muggleborns, despite having these like prejudice set against them, they still have a, a place in the wizarding world. Meanwhile, I think it's a big question of where do squibs actually belong, if not in the wizarding world or in the muggle world, if they don't belong in either. I put down as like a side note, like the contrast between like your attitude towards these things, like the difference between Filch and Mrs. Fig and how they're accepted and how they adapted to being squibs is very different. Um, I think Filch really, what's the word I'm looking for? I think Filch really holds it against other wizards, like the kids, especially the students that they can do this magic and he can't. Whereas Mrs. Fig was able to sort of accept and adapt and still have like a small foot in the wizarding world, but ultimately she does settle in the muggle world. So I just think it's very interesting. And I do wonder how the rest of the wizarding world places these squibs. I love that you brought that up. Yeah. It's also something that you could see shift over time. Like in the 90s, 
the the period of time that these books are set in, maybe squibs aren't as accepted, but in the decades ahead, they might be more accepted, similar to how when it comes to race, sexuality, here in the muggle world, society becomes more accepting over time. There's a really good point in the Discord, too, from Hufflepuff Teach about this and saying the fact that they aren't even allowed to attend Hogwarts is an equity issue. There are subjects that they would be perfectly capable of learning. Likewise, jobs in the wizarding world they can participate in. It doesn't require magic to work at Zonko's or something to that effect. And Great point. I agree with that. And, and I'm wondering, too, when Filch was actually hired by Dumbledore. Um, and this also speaks to Dumbledore's willingness for inclusion. I think if you look at his staff over the seven years that we are uh, at Hogwarts with Harry, it is a fairly diverse group um, than probably what Hogwarts has been in the years prior with other headmasters. And you, know, you think about Filch as a squib being the caretaker. You think about all the different individuals that came through as Defense Against the Dark Arts professors. Uh, you think about Hagrid being half giant. So Dumbledore is is much more willing uh, to accept kind of the others in the community, uh, the larger wizarding community, than I think probably prior headmasters would. So according to Hogwarts Mystery, the game, Filch joined <laughs> around the time that Bellatrix was a student. So I don't know if you can take that as Poor canon, guy. though. <laughs> I mean, and, and the Harry Potter wiki has like stuff from about Filch from the 80s. But again, this is stuff from Hogwarts Mystery. So I don't know if we can take this stuff too seriously. But I think it's safe to say he's been there for at least a few decades. Yeah. And I think, you know, we can take it back to Alyssa's really great point about the different environments that we see Filch and Mrs. Fig in. Um, And it really highlights the fact that the wizarding world, at least at this stage in time, does not have places in it for squibs, really, not meaningful places. So squibs are forced to find places for themselves. And that is incredibly limiting. Um, It's why somebody like Filch is having to accept a job at a school of magic as a janitor who is forced to manually clean the school when we all know magic can be used to clean. So why why is Filch being put in this position? Um, I think... It does speak to, you know, Dumbledore and his eye for inclusion, but it also speaks to some ignorance, too, because he's never had to live without the ability to do magic. So he doesn't know what the day in and day out of that is like. And we know that Filch's resentment towards the students is ultimately because he's having to clean up after them without magic. When we know Hogwarts has a lot of magic that is sort of automated, right? All of the protection spells and everything else. Why should cleaning then be done manually? <laughs> right. Then you can talk about house elves. Like you can you can take this down a much longer path of conversation. Um, but it it really does give some additional context as to why Filch is the way he is doesn't justify him being so cruel to the students but and it 
certainly gives context. I think you could also have a conversation about Dumbledore as it relates to Mrs. Fig because she be, just becomes part of his plan. You you could see it as her trying to have some sort of tie to the Wizarding World, but at the end of the day, depending on your perspective of Dumbledore, you could say that he is using her because she is just like any other normal human being that isn't a part of the wizarding world. And she can keep an eye on Harry without drawing any attention to herself. So there's a give and take to this, I think. Yeah, yeah, for sure. Andrew is our resident Dumbledore defender. How do you respond to these charges? What if Filch likes cleaning? I enjoy vacuuming. What if Filch enjoys some manual labor? I don't, I don't get the impression that he likes it very much. Do you yell at Pat while you're vacuuming? <laughs> yell what? <laughs> Mud and filth. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Mud and filth. Dust everywhere. Or Brooklyn. Crumbs everywhere. This is kind of ringing a bell for a previous discussion, but I think we once spoke about Filch because he has a squib, because he can't be that full-blown wizard. I think to some extent he might like being at Hogwarts and being surrounded by the wizarding world. Does he show it? No, of course not. But I think he likes being part of that world, to quote Little Mermaid. He doesn't have to be there, right? He could leave. He doesn't have to work there. I think he enjoys it to some extent. I was going to say that I think he would rather be in a world where he is ostracized than know that he could belong in a world in that world and be in the muggle world yeah i think he'd rather i think he'd rather just be at hogwarts kind of have like a half step into it yeah yeah well i think now we are gonna have to ask chloe to make a meme of the little mermaid and filch somehow (laughs) just based off of the connection you just drew there little mermaid on the rock that that still with filch's head yeah filch's head on it that's it (laughs) and mrs norris next to the mermaid (laughs) mrs norris is uh (laughs) flounder flounder (laughs) yeah (laughs) we got it speaking of people that harry's not super fond of let's talk about snape snape i had forgotten about this until i read this chapter snape has zero subtlety here he is really trying to at least on some level, implicate Harry. Maybe he doesn't think that Harry's actually the one who petrified Mrs. Norris, but he's absolutely putting him on blast here for being somewhere that he doesn't think he should have been. Um, He asks, why was he in the upstairs corridor at all? You know, there are certainly some suspicious circumstances here, Dumbledore. And I'm wondering if a layer in all of this is at this early stage in the series, might Snape suspect Harry's susceptibility to having his mind infiltrated by Voldemort? Yeah. So taking that further, you're saying Voldemort might be controlling him here and he was the one who petrified. Yeah. Yeah. Right. Because Snape, Snape has, he has Harry kind of like on the edge of getting ready to tell them that he was hearing voices Ultimately, he doesn't, um, which Ron later tells him is a good thing. But Snape suspects that there's something more here than just, oh, well, we decided we weren't hungry, so (laughs) we were going up to bed. Um, 
And Snape is calling them out for, you know, why not join the feast after you went to the death day party? Why go up to that corridor at all? It's not even on the way to your common room. So I wonder if he knows that Harry was hearing, sensing, or aware of something that others weren't at the very least. Possible. And we, we've we gotten multiple references. We I think we got one earlier when they were in... Do they go to Snape's office after they crash into the Whomping Willow? Mm -hmm. And then going even further back to Sorcerer's Stone, we've literally been told it was if Snape was reading Harry's mind. So I think that he definitely has the ability to know. I don't know that he's able to figure out everything that Harry is experiencing, but I think he's at least able to tell when Harry isn't telling the truth. and. Unfortunately, Ron's stomach betrays them yeah. in this moment because it rumbles. And Snape also knows that ghost food uh, doesn't sit well with humans. So they they kind of get caught in a lie here. And it's tough for Harry to, to back himself out of it. I, I guess the good thing for him at the end of the day is Snape doesn't think that they really did have anything to do with what happened to Mrs. Norris. He even says like, perhaps they were just in the wrong place at the wrong time. Um, but he's going to try and milk it for everything that it's worth. I mean, I think he's just looking for any excuse to nail Harry. I think he's having flashbacks of James. I think that mm. he's pissed off that they didn't get a bigger punishment for what happened with the Whomping Willow. Remember, they kind of got off scot-free. They did a little bit of yeah. detention, but nothing nothing major, right? No house points taken. I don't think Snape was very happy with the outcome of that. So like now uh, that he has Harry in a precarious position, I think he wants to take advantage of it. Well, speaking of that, he then tries to ban Harry from playing Quidditch. He proposes that until Potter decides to tell us the truth about what happened tonight, um, he should be suspended from playing Quidditch. And we know that this isn't really, or at least the sense that I got is that Snape's end goal here, you know, his big, um, his big determination in this moment isn't just to get Harry banned from Quidditch, but it feels like this is, a nice cherry on top, given that he couldn't get Harry to tell the truth. Um, but is Snape just incapable of resisting being as malicious as humanly possible every chance he can get with Harry? <laughs> the Quidditch thing felt so like immature almost. Yeah. Like it wasn't a very thoughtful punishment. It was just lazy. It was almost like he wanted to just kind of spook Harry real quick. Maybe he didn't seriously think that. He could ban him from Quidditch, especially right in front of McGonagall, who claps back at this idea really quick. I think it's just taking something that Harry really enjoys, and he just gets a lot of satisfaction out of that, like even just threatening it. I think even for a reader, too, like these books were targeted to children, at least the early ones. And as a child, that also sounds like one of the worst things. Oh, no, he can't play his favorite sport because like when we're grown up, you know, we're playing soccer or whatever else like to lose that to lose a fun activity is really painful for a child it's also implied that there is a rivalry between snape and mcgonagall over the quidditch cup because in sorcerer's stone mcgonagall talks about how she's tired of seeing the trophy sit in snape's office as a former quidditch player herself right this is also an opportunity for snape to take out gryffindor's 
best player and and give Why his team an actual chance at uh, at winning this matchup. Well, speaking of Harry feeling like maybe not in this moment, but sometimes he does feel like Snape reads his mind. In this moment, he feels like he's being X-rayed by Dumbledore. Yeah. And then Dumbledore says to everyone, Harry is, quote, innocent until proven guilty. So my read of this was that he did do that X-ray of Harry with his (laughs) legitimacy. And he got a good read on Harry's true involvement of what Harry actually knows and determined that he isn't guilty. And, of course, he didn't want to admit that he just read Harry's mind. <laughs> Harry and, and the kids don't need to know that. But the I guess all the professors might s- suspect that. And right after Dumbledore says this, it says, quote, Snape was furious. And they're both legilimans. Is he reacting to Dumbledore reading Harry's mind? I wonder, like in with the benefit of hindsight, knowing that they both can read minds, Dumbledore and Snape, I wonder if Snape was furious, not because Dumbledore just said simply innocent until proven guilty, but Snape's also furious because Dumbledore read his mind, read Harry's mind and knew that he was innocent. That's interesting. I had just taken this as both Dumbledore and Snape being accomplished enough wizards that upon examining Mrs. Norris, it would be immediately obvious that this was not something that three 12 year olds would be capable of but it's always mm -hmm. possible i mean knowing what we what we find out later in the series about snape and dumbledore both having this ability it does raise questions as we're rereading these earlier books and wondering when and if you know they started using it in the books prior to us finding out about it yeah. And Dumbledore says as much that this couldn't have been the work of a second year student. Mm-hmm. So to me, that should absolve Harry of any responsibility here. They do say that they were at the death day party. So they're allowed to do what they want on Halloween. They they don't need to be reprimanded here. So I, I just think it's probably Snape looking at the situation. I like what you said, Andrew, but I also think it's Snape looking at the situation and feeling like, Harry got away with something like Mm. what that is, who knows, but oh, Harry got away with something else again. again. What I like about this though, is that it's in direct contrast to Snape's behavior in Half-Blood Prince because he is, Harry and Draco have very much the same type of situation in Chamber of Secrets and Half-Blood Prince. But in Half-Blood Prince, it's Draco who's always getting into trouble and Snape who's coming to the rescue to bail him out. Um, whereas in this book, it seems like Snape is always trying to put blame at Harry's feet for all the different situations that Harry comes um, to have to deal with in this book. There are definitely a couple of interesting things about Draco that we can make some connecting the threads um, observations about with both of these chapters. And we'll, we'll touch on another one here in a little bit. But Andrew, you had an interesting point here about understanding why Harry wouldn't want to tell the teachers what he was hearing yeah and it just made me wonder should he have said something yeah i i think he should but on the he should have said something but on the other hand i get why harry would be so hesitant to explain what he was hearing you just fear the worst especially harry like he's always worried about being expelled so he's he's naturally always very scared about what can happen to him but i feel like this information would have been so helpful here 
Dumbledore was present, he probably would have believed him. And this would have been very important information for Dumbledore to hear and, and act on. So it's just kind of a bummer that Harry didn't say anything. Because I don't think it would have went the way he's expecting. Do we think if Snape wasn't present that there's a higher chance that Harry would have said something if it was just Dumbledore and McGonagall in the room? And maybe without Filch, too, because I think they're both pretty intimidating. And Filch is like clearly on edge right now. So you you don't want to upset him more than he already is. Yeah, we have to remember the sort of um, background of this whole conversation that's happening is Filch is literally in a chair sobbing into his hands because he thinks Mrs. Yeah. Norris is dead, which I really felt for him, honestly. I mean, I think we're all animal lovers here. And mm-hmm. my dog got petrified. I would be beside myself. All right. Well, let's get into the next topic for this chapter. And it has to be about the legend of the Chamber of Secrets, which we learn about here. The reason that we learn about it the way we do through Professor Bin's usually very boring history of magic class, is because all copies of Hogwarts A History have been checked out from the library. There are none available. And sometimes when I read stuff like this, when I read things like that as a justification, my conspiracy theorist comes out. So I want to ask y'all, do we think that students actually checked out all the copies Or was it a strategic choice to remove them from the library to stop students from looking into the chamber? I like that. I love that as a guess. I like to believe that they were just all checked out. Hogwarts, as you may know, is a security nightmare. They don't think a lot of things through. My reason for it is, does it say how many copies there are in the library? I don't remember. It's probably seven or 12. Yeah. (laughs) Right. It's a good guess. That was funny. (laughs) We know that the student population at Hogwarts is relatively small. We've done that math before. And if all of these copies are checked out and either seven or 12 students originate kind of like knowing what the legend of the Chamber of Secrets is, it's not going to take very long for that to run through the rest of the student population like wildfire. And it presumably Mm -hmm. isn't. Because nobody seems to know. So that's why I think this this was Madame Pence being like, Mm-mm, we don't need that right now. Um, and as a follow-up question to that, I'm just curious why this information is so elusive. Because many of these kids' yeah. parents, you would think, would have heard the legend during their schooling years, right? Because... The last time the chamber was opened and a student literally died was what in the 50s, 40s. So a lot of these kids' parents would have been at Hogwarts in, you know, depending on their age between the 60s and the 70s, right? So I just, I find it hard to believe that no one has any idea. To go back to the first point of before we get into the parents, whether or not they would have just like known about this in the first place was, I was going to say Hogwarts already has a censorship issue because Dumbledore took all of those um, dark arts books out of the library in the first place. And then there's the entire restricted section. So I would not put it past them to take those books out first. Um, Second, I think the only person I can think of 
besides Hagrid, which Hagrid would never talk about that time. He like refuses to in the first place of his time at Hogwarts. And like, that's the whole entire reason he got expelled. Um, And I can't remember if this is like fan canon or if it's real, but I think Lucius Malfoy was in school at that time. I think you're right. He's the only, I think he's the only one I can think of. And Draco is someone who knows like the truth, not the truth, but of what happened last time. Cause he knows that Myrtle ult- ultimately died. I don't think he knows that it was moaning Myrtle, but he does know that a girl died. So I think it's just which parents are telling the truth and which ones were actually there for it as well. Hmm. This does seem like something though, that would be a myth or, or a bit of like folklore about the school itself, right? What you call like an urban legend almost about Hogwarts and it is strange that there aren't more students who know about this. And maybe it's just the circles that Harry runs in and that we're seeing this all through Harry's perspective. And obviously he doesn't have any background on Hogwarts, but the Chamber of Secrets seems like something that you would hear about uh, if you're a student. And the fact that Bins needs to explain it all to them is very surprising to me. And I, I also I have a lot of thoughts about why this wasn't further investigated after the fact. We know that Hagrid is the one who gets blamed for it, but clearly all these years later with Hagrid working on the school grounds, he was not the one that was responsible for this. But I guess at the same time, we also have to remember that I don't know how much public knowledge there is about Tom Riddle at this time and the fact that he became Voldemort. I think that that's just something that becomes public knowledge as we get further on into the series, I think it's a very close-knit group of people who know the truth about him. In terms of parents passing this down to their kids, it's a very terrifying myth (laughs) that something is lurking under the school to wipe out the students who aren't purebloods. I mean, I don't know if I would want to share that with my kid. How are you going to sleep at night? When I was a kid, I was a t- I was terrified of a little statue that my dad had in the basement. <laughs> and that was a f- statue. Like, I think some kids would be... What was the statue of? It was... Of- oh, God. What was it? It was Groucho Marx, right? Groucho <laughs> Marx. Yes. Thank you. I I'm hated just, that thing. Just thinking about Christmas gifts for later this year. <laughs> Or I, similarly, I was just reminded of this at Christmas. Uh, my sister had a life life size Barbie, and my parents had to get rid of it because she was scared of it. Yeah, <laughs> like, those are terrifying. <laughs> so I wouldn't want to know that something might be lurking under Hogwarts. That would keep me up at night. <laughs> well, speaking of bins, um, Hermione brings this up in History of Magic. She, you know, this is one of the first times that we see her step outside of the typical, you know, proper student Hermione behavior. She later goes on to do this to challenge Umbridge in Order of the Phoenix. But Bins explains to the students that there are reliable historical sources that do confirm the history of the conflict between Slytherin and the other three Hogwarts founders and confirm that that's Slytherin's reason for departing the school but that everything else about the legend of the Chamber of Secrets is sensationalized. There is no proof that any chamber or any monster living in that chamber exists. 
Um, and the school has apparently been searched by very, you know, well-renowned learned wizards, and they have not found any evidence of this. But were any of those people who were searching for it a parcel mouth? No. Nope. <laughs> <laughs> and I think Dean Thomas brings that point up, right? I can't remember what exactly he says, but I know that I was just going to say that Bins is just so caught up. He has this like mind frame of like everything has has to be solid and believable. And as he says, verifiable fact. But I mean, even in the U.S. school system, history is constantly skewed to fit the narrative that they want you to you to learn. A hundred percent. If Salazar Slytherin didn't want the chamber to be found, he would have made it so that it wouldn't be found, whether or not it was locked by parcel parcel tongue or if it was just he hid it because he didn't want anyone to know. Pat also asked me this question the other day. How is it that the ghosts never found it? Shouldn't they have been able to get to it? I didn't really have an answer for him, but I thought that was an interesting question. Yeah, I think we're seeing in this book in particular, examples of just like in the real world, there are some topics that people prefer to kind of skirt around, particularly when it relates to like a person or an institution that they either like or are part of. So I can very much see, for example, you know, the Hogwarts Board of Governors deciding that they don't want this to be common knowledge. They don't want the Chamber of Secrets to be a topic that comes up frequently. They certainly don't want the students talking about it. They don't want the rumors getting published in something like the Quibbler, for example, which Xenophilius would absolutely do that. So I can see, to Alyssa's point, there being a deliberate censorship attempt here. But again, the rumor mill amongst, you know, adolescents is very powerful. So I do maintain that somebody, it's a little hard to believe that it wouldn't at least be a whisper amongst the students at some point, at least the older students. I also think going back to like, why didn't the students hear about this from their parents was because Tom Riddle had framed Hagrid and Hagrid didn't open the Chamber of Secrets. Hagrid had an acromantula spider, and that was the monster. So, like, he did his best to close that door of it was the Chamber of Secrets. Meanwhile, I think Dumbledore always sort of knew that the chamber had been opened, but they hid that purposefully um, and went with the, which is why I think he, you know, allowed Hagrid to come back as the gamekeeper. Um, But Mm. I think that was kind of how those rumors got snuffed out originally, probably. Yeah, I think you're right. And it speaks to just like in the real world, again, um, people looking for convenient scapegoats to explain uncomfortable truths, so that, you know, we don't have to hold up the mirror to ourselves and acknowledge the reality. We see examples of that all the time. In the real world, I mean, if you, you know, go digging in the news, you can find examples of schools, real life schools where horrible things have happened. And 
narratives at the time were manufactured to cover up those realities. And it took a really long time for the truth to come out. So this, you know, it is a case, I think, of fiction kind of mirroring what we see in reality somewhat here. But at the same time, I think that for Dumbledore, there there has to be alarm bells that are going off because we've seen the writing on the wall literally at this point. We've seen somebody at Hogwarts be petrified. We know what happens towards the end of the next chapter and Dumbledore phrases the question very well, not not who, but how mm-hmm. this all came about. Um, because maybe initially you could think that this is a bit of a prank that's being played, but the evidence starts to pile up and Hogwarts really becomes a security nightmare. How do you not have a plan in place for the students once this continues to play itself out? It seems like it's very unsafe and that more action should have been taken. We can probably talk about that later on, but starting to sound like a security nightmare, security nightmare. Whoop, whoop. So wrapping us up here, we'll get through these next few points uh, a little quickly. We know that Slytherin um, is established at this point as the source of pure blood mania. And Harry begins receiving the first suspicions of being the heir of Slytherin. Yeah. And Ron says he would leave Hogwarts if he was sorted into Slytherin. Thanks a lot, buddy. That hurts. And that reminds me. <laughs> yeah, it. you know what? It does. That reminds me when I was at the Wizarding World Park last week, one of the portraits said, I hope none of you are Slytherin supporters. I almost walked out and asked for my money back. <laughs> That's rude. I was upset. That's rude. That is rude. rude. Did you punch the portrait? <laughs> uh, no, I probably would have been kicked out. <laughs> the trio also goes back to the scene of the crime, which is conveniently right outside Moaning Myrtle's bathroom, which... You know, we later learn is the entrance to the Chamber of Secrets. Um, They go to ask her, hey, did you hear anything the night of the attack? Right. And she says she wasn't paying attention, which I find kind of comical because that's ultimately what got her killed 50 years Mm. prior is that she really wasn't paying attention to what was going on. So maybe she needs to pay a little bit more attention. I know. (laughs) She hasn't evolved very much, has she? She was nicer in this chapter, though. Yeah. Yeah. A little bit. Um, interesting note here that it seems like Percy may still be being used as a misdirect here because he turns up and catches them coming out of the bathroom, which also has them at the scene of the crime again. He scolds them, tells them, you know, scat. Um, but again, this is the, you know, maybe third time that we've seen Percy sort of conveniently um, taking part in the narrative, whether it's you know, forcing Jenny to go take care of herself or disappearing to his room and not wanting to give explanations for it. Now he's here at the scene of the crime telling the trio to go away. And I just wondered if we thought that, you know, Percy was intended to be a potential suspect for us as readers. I think so. At least something suspicious is up with him. Yeah. He's acting weird. We know it. We later learn it's because he has a secret girlfriend, but. (laughs) Yeah. And understandably, he's a prefect, so he's allowed to pretty much be wherever he wants. But the fact that he's popping up in the exact location where the trio are is a little bit odd. And we have a nice connecting the threads moment here, right, Micah, about Draco in in this chapter and then uh, later on in Half-Blood Prince. 
Yeah, you know, Hermione is very quick to get on board with helping Harry and Ron figure out a way to determine whether Draco is in fact the heir of Slytherin. Uh, and it's also noted here that in Half-Blood Prince, she comes very close to figuring out who the Half-Blood Prince is. But what I find interesting is that despite her eagerness to be so helpful in Chamber of Secrets, in Half-Blood Prince, she's really not on board with the whole Draco is up to something thing. Um, she, she, she has a lot of pushback and I don't know if, you know, it's because she has a crush on Draco and Half-Blood Prince or (laughs) Hermione, (laughs) but again, we're seeing the whole, um, connecting the threads between these two books where Hermione is very adamant, uh, in this book about helping Harry and Ron, uh, try and figure out more information about Draco, Half-Blood Prince, not so much. She doesn't think that he's capable. Of, of doing the things that Harry is accusing him of. All right, let's get into some odds and ends here. Uh, we know that Jenny is particularly affected by what happened to Mrs. Norris because she is a great cat lover. Um, do we think Jenny is at all conscious of the attack on Mrs. Norris? Mighty convenient. She's also a great cat lover, just to kind of like excuse <laughs> the the scenario. Right. Throw us off the scent. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. I, I don't think she is conscious. I think she is because uh, yeah. I can't remember if it's a movieism or in the books, but I remember she says something like she would wake up and she had like blood on her hands. And like when the roosters were killed, she had like feathers in her, like she had feathers on yeah. her. And so it's like these things were happening. And then she woke up. And she was almost just like, it's pointing to me, but it couldn't have been me, could it? But I think she's starting to get suspicious of the time. She's, she's involved somehow, yeah, she's but she losing doesn't know this how. Time. Okay. She's losing this time and this memory of where she was. And then bad things yeah. keep happening. So I think if she doesn't suspect herself, she's definitely, definitely not affected by it happening to Mrs. Norris, but by bad things happening and her not remembering them. I see. Yeah, that's a good theory. We also see uh, the first instance of Harry being avoided by someone who thinks he might be the heir of Slytherin. Justin Finch Fletchley does a a very rapid about face and walks away from him when Harry is about to say hi. Um, Poor Justin. We know what happens a little bit later. And Harry's reminded that he was nearly sorted into Slytherin when, you know, Ron notes that he thinks he would have gone home i think if uh, the hat had tried to do that and harry has like some like shame about that too because he brings up this whole thing about how he was nearly sorted into slytherin and he notes that he was never he never told ron and hermione that he was almost sorted into slytherin and he's like almost like ashamed of that and there's this moment where he um interacts with colin and Colin has like, oh, someone in my class told me something. And he like gets like pushed down the hallway. Yeah. And Ron's like, what was he going to say? And he goes, probably that I'm the heir of Slytherin. So like Harry already <laughs> knows that people suspect him and his best friends don't even know that there's that connection there as well. Yeah. Great point. And to round us out here, we see that spiders are behaving oddly at the scene of Mrs. Norris's petrification. Why couldn't it have been butterflies? <laughs> we'll learn later <laughs> what that was about. But now we're going to move into chapter 10, The Rogue Bludger. And Alyssa, you are kicking us off with our seven-word summary. Oh, boy. Oh, boy. She just opened a journal. Why did I you did. open a I journal? Had to, I, had to, I made a note because I was like, what am I going to say? And then I made... Um, <laughs> 
And I wrote down a note and I forgot what the word was already. <laughs> <laughs> well, you came prepared. That's great. So uh, here we go. Broken. Bones. Consume. Lockhearts. Reputation. At. I'm so sorry, Alyssa. (laughs) Quidditch. Yep. Okay. You know, when we get to the end of the book and we do, you know, we'll get to pick one chapter summary to redo. (laughs) This might be the one. I don't know. Just call me up. It's fine. We'll redo it. Yeah, exactly. We'll get you here for it, Alyssa. Alyssa, pull out your journal. We're doing it again. Well, one uh, seven word summary definitely has to be done in parcel tongue. So, oh, ooh, yeah. Spooky. Who, who speaks the best parcel tongue here? Eric. <laughs> I'll just bring my snakes. They can do it. Yes. Oh, my God. Oh, yeah. I forgot you had snakes. Yeah. Well, our chapters begin and end, reminding us how much of an obvious phony Lockhart is. Um, Ron notes at the end of the last chapter, you know, any professor that would sign this note to allow us to get a book out of the restricted section would have to be real thick. Well, of course, who do they go to for this but Professor Lockhart? So let's talk about this book from the restricted section, Most Potent Potions. And I'm just wondering, Alyssa, you touched on this a little bit earlier in the discussion, but do muggle schools have restricted sections or something similar to them that are you know, reading that's intended for more advanced or older students? Not from my experience, no. Yeah, I've never experienced that. I I think I can only think of like being in like school and having like websites be blocked. But that's very different than having like books banned from the library. Yeah, that's a good parallel, though. Yeah, I haven't experienced this either. And I think it would bring up questions about, you know, the right to information. So it it's it's good that this type of thing doesn't actually exist but in the book we start hearing why this book may have been restricted to the older students and i mean there's a lot of grim dark stuff in there and just disturbing stuff to look at so on one hand you can understand why a 12 year old shouldn't have access to this information on the other hand it just doesn't seem like something we've experienced before here in the muggle world no but I often wonder, is is there an age that you would be given kind of full access to the restricted section? Full like, access. Is it when full you're a sixth pass. year? Is it when you're, you're a seventh year? Fast pass. As opposed to needing to get a signed note from a professor to take something out. I, I would guess like 16, 15, 16. It's fair. Let's talk about some of these ingredients in the polyjuice potion, because um, Hermione finds it pretty quickly. To Andrew's point, there are some pretty disturbing visuals and descriptions in most potent potions, but I want us to focus on two ingredients in particular that uh, the trio have noted are going to be hard to get because they're not ingredients that are kept in the student's potion store stores. Um, One of those is powdered horn of a bicorn. So I just looked into this um, and just a little bit of interesting color that this gives the chapter. The bicorn is uh, one of two fabulous beasts that appear in European satirical works of the Middle Ages and the Renaissance. Its counterpart, I'm not going to be able to say this correctly, is um, the chichavachi. And the bicorn 
as a creature. It's described as being part panther, part cow, with a human-like face. So draw yourselves a mental picture of that. That devours kind-hearted and devoted husbands... And because and because of their abundance, because there are so many kind hearted and devoted husbands, the bicorn is plump and well fed. Uh, the Chichavachi, its counterpart, um, on the other hand, devours obedient wives. And because of their scarcity, because there just aren't any obedient wives out there, it is thin and starving. And I just thought it was an interesting note that if the bicorn exists in the wizarding world, does the Chichapachi exist too? <laughs> I guess so. Let's take a look at Fantastic Beasts and where to find them and see if it's in there. I know. Yeah, where's yeah, my we can copy? See if that's in there. The other item of note was shredded skin of a boomslang. And a boomslang is a large, highly venomous snake. Um, it's This is a real snake. Its common name means tree snake in Afrikaans and Dutch, uh, with boom meaning tree and slang meaning snake. Alyssa, you have snakes. You ever see one of these snakes, IRL? Not IRL, no. I did have okay. to do a Google, but mine are very docile. They wouldn't they wouldn't be highly venomous. Okay. Can't use okay. can't use ball python skin. Yeah. They wouldn't live in the Chamber of Secrets either. I'm no, assuming. no. <laughs> <laughs> um, well, Hermione adds um, another ingredient to the list that kind of concerns Ron in particular. Um, they basically have to go find DNA of the people that they want to turn into. And Ron immediately imagines mm. toenails for some reason. I don't know why his mind goes there, <laughs> but it does. He's a feet guy. <laughs> Is that a flavor in Birdie Bot's Every Flavor Beans, Toenails. too? I wonder if maybe that's why he's... Yeah. <laughs> I don't know. It sounds like something that would be. It does, doesn't it? Well, we also get um, one of our early examples of rule-breaking Hermione for the greater good. Here, you know, she observes that obvious them, obviously them brewing a polyjuice potion is very much against the rules, but that... You know, somebody with an agenda to attack and harm Muggleborns at Hogwarts is way worse, and they need to be doing something about it for the greater good. Um, I wonder if this particular example often gets overlooked for Hermione because we so often remember her resistance in Order of the Phoenix and really her insistence that Dumbledore's army be formed. I think that's the example a lot of people look to for Hermione becoming a rule breaker, but she actually does it much earlier in the series. Harry and Ron seem just as surprised by this too. And with Hermione being a muggle-born, uh, she has so much more at stake. And she says so it's so herself, saying that, you yeah. know, I think threatening muggle-borns is far worse than brewing up a difficult potion. And it shows her Gryffindor side much more than her more bookish traits. Agreed. Yeah, it's a really good point. I can see why that would be motivating her so much. For sure. It is just the, the thought of eating somebody's, let's say, hair or toenails. It dissolves, though. But still, it's gross. I mean, it we all nasty. probably eat hair whether or not we know it. Like at a restaurant, you might not notice a hair in, in the soup bowl. <laughs> I know I get grossed out. I get grossed out when I find my own hair in my own food. Yes. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Especially like if you're a germaphobe, like I, I can be a, a pretty big germaphobe sometimes. 
So I don't know if I would knowingly eat this. I guess it'd be kind of thrilling to transform into somebody else for an afternoon. Like that kind of sounds fun. Whether or not what you're up to is is bad, but I don't know if it's worth going through the uh, uh, drinking this potion, which doesn't mm-hmm. taste good either, right? I'm forgetting no. the scene when they transform, oh, but it's it's awful. Disgusting. Yeah, I, I don't know if it's worth it. I can barely drink cold medicine. So I did want to connect a couple of threads here before we move on. Uh, the first is probably a bit of an obvious one, and that is Polyjuice Potion. And we know how important potions is in Half-Blood Prince. Yep. The other thing is going back to the restricted section uh, in terms of Hermione being able to get Lockhart to take a book out uh, so that she could brew this Polyjuice Potion there is a very important moment as it relates to the restricted section in Half-Blood Prince. And I'm thinking of when Tom Riddle is talking to Slughorn and he says, I was in the library the other day in the restricted section and I read something rather odd about a bit of rare magic. Uh, And so very interesting ties there between these two books. Restricted section coming into play. Yeah. And both of them are professors who are, you know, I, Obviously, I think we can say Slughorn is he's a different, very different kind of person from Lockhart. But both of them are heavily swayed by celebrity or at the very least people who they perceive to be impressive. Definitely. I mean, that's how Hermione ultimately gets Lockhart to sign this permission slip. It's it's kind of feeding him some of his own ego. Yeah. Oh, yeah, absolutely. All right. Well, moving on to um, the Quidditch match in this chapter between Gryffindor and Slytherin. It's Draco's first match playing as Slytherin Seeker. And something is afoot. Something is amiss with one of the bludgers. Um, It has gone rogue and it is like a drone with a target and the target is Harry. It's following him all it's over terrible. the pitch. Yeah. And ultimately, you know, it results in Harry having his arm broken, although he does ultimately catch the snitch literally um, right under from Draco's nose. It was hovering, I think, just above his ear when Harry saw it. But I thought an interesting um, place to kick this off was to think about the events and and who Harry later meets in the hospital wing and thinking about how all of Dobby's interventions at this point are, they feel like a distant memory. You know, I feel like enough time has passed from Dobby's appearance at Privet Drive and the platform at nine and three quarters being sealed off. We don't, we're not really thinking about Dobby very much anymore. So it is, Uh, For Harry, an unpleasant surprise when he appears in the hospital wing um, while Harry is there. But thinking about the bludger here for a moment, the suspicion for the tampering with the bludger is automatically shifted to the Slytherin team. Does this seem like something they would do if they had the chance? If they had the chance, not all Slytherin team, not everyone in Slytherin. This, (laughs) This particular team. Yes. Yeah. Probably. If they actually did this and they were caught, they're cheating in one of the worst ways possible. So I, I think that would have got them disqualified for the rest of the season. And they and they definitely find it funny 
that it's happening too. Yeah. Yeah. Which is why the Gryffindor team like thinks it could be them because they clearly think it's the funniest thing that's ever happened. But Alyssa, you have a question for Madam Hooch, right? I do because (laughs) Fred and George are sitting there like, we have to like stop. We have to like have this bludger be um, like confiscated and like tested. And they're saying like they could, they would have to forfeit the match if that was the case. But why doesn't Madam Hooch notice that it was clearly tampered with and step in on her own? It's so frustrating. I think this is the question because it's not like the Gryffindor team are the only ones who can see what's going on. And this is playing out in front of the entire school. You're talking about hundreds of students, professors are on hand. It seems highly questionable that they'll even allow the match to continue. And I was actually earlier, I was going to defend Slytherin because I don't think that to me, this would be too obvious for them to try and find a way to gain an upper hand in the match. So while they are the clear-cut, easy group to point the finger at, I just don't think it's something that they would have done, especially that they all have new brooms now. You'd think that they would be easily able to defeat uh, Gryffindor. So, but But I do have a major issue with with this bludger just like zooming around. It could have hurt other people too, never mind Harry, because Harry's yeah, dodging. That's what I was say. He's dodging every attempt to the best of his ability, but there's other people on the Quidditch pitch. There's people in the stands, and they're just cool with it flying around like that. It could hurt a lot of people. Yeah, exactly. They have no clue what it's going to do next. And yet Hooch is like, whatever, let's continue playing. Yeah. Ultimately, she leaves it up to Harry. To say Mm -hmm. whether or not he's comfortable continuing with this. Um, And, you know, reminder, Harry's 12 at this point. Um, And he says, you know, incredibly, um, you know, devoted to his sport. He says, if we stop now, we'll have to forfeit the match. And, you know, (laughs) although this is very much in character for Harry, it's not unlike real world examples of athletes taking risks for their sport, right? Micah, I kind of wanted to ask you about this. Um, What's your take here? Yeah, there's a high level of of risk. And I I think maybe we should remember that this book was written in the 90s and the sports being played (laughs) in the 90s, because I think that the precautions that are taken in sports are much greater now uh, I even think about a lot of the events that I work, you know, we have to have an EMT on site or we have to have an ambulance on site, depending on the nature of the event. You can even think back to what happened a couple of weeks ago in that Buffalo Bills game with DeMar Hamlin, and and they had well-trained medical professionals on site and it saved his life. And so that's why I'm just a little bit surprised of, of how, again, hair... I don't really think that Harry should be the one making the decision here. I think it's Madame Hooch no. who should be making the call or or Professor McGonagall, right? There's no there's no coach. I mean, there's Oliver Wood, who's the captain. He should be the one making the decision. And mm-hmm. he should be, you know, if he is in fact their captain, he should be making the decision in the best interest of Harry. I mean, this is just right. a game at the end of the day, but you can tell that Wood is just so consumed with the sport. And Harry is just all about. I would I would wonder if they were playing Hufflepuff or Ravenclaw if Harry would have felt differently and would have just been willing to say, okay, like let's get because it's Slytherin, I think he feels a lot differently. 
and and what happened at the end of last year with not being able to play and he feels the pure pressure of like I don't want to be the reason that we're ending this game. I want my team to win. I don't want to let people down. So that's exactly why it shouldn't be Harry's decision. It should be Woods. It should be Hooch's because they know too that he's going to feel like he needs to continue playing for his team and for his house. Yeah. Right. And you see it a lot too in football where players will get hit really hard. They have to go through concussion protocol. And of course, they want to get right back out onto the field, but there are certain steps that need to be taken in order to ensure that they are in a state where they can physically do that. And I think that for Harry, like he's avoided so many hits up until this point. It was only a matter of time before the bludger found him. And yes, adults should be making decisions here, though, is my point. It should this should not be at the at the discretion of Harry to determine whether or not he goes back into the Quidditch match. I feel like this show has turned into an episode of Sports Center on ESPN where we're <laughs> analyzing a game. Well, unfortunately, Micah, there is one adult who makes a decision um in this moment. Uh, immediately after Harry, you know, lands after having the bludger break his arm. Unfortunately, that person is Professor Lockhart, and he subsequently removes all the bones in Harry's arm instead of mending them. It's a really funny scene, too, because when Harry wakes up, he sees Lockhart over him, and Harry says, oh, no, not you. (laughs) (laughs) Not you. It's it's belittling and uh, justified, of course. And then Lockhart replies, doesn't know what he's saying because he was just hit. And Harry says, no, I'd rather keep it like this. Thanks. I just thought that was really great, (laughs) even though poor Harry's going through hell right now. And it really feels like Hermione is burying her head in the sand at this point. I mean, she witnesses her hero do this. And I'm wondering at this point in time, there's been enough evidence in the first half of the book that Lockhart is a complete fake and has no idea what he's doing. Hermione's smarter than this. So do we think that she knows and she's just embarrassed that she was wrong about him? Uh, absolutely. <laughs> I think <laughs> I think between being embarrassed about being wrong in general, it's also just like wrong about like her and the fact that she has like this crush on him too. So it's like, yeah. oh, my crush did this and he did wrong. That's so embarrassing. And <laughs> she's just she's just in denial. She's in denial. I want to share one of my favorite quotes from the television show BoJack Horseman. It was on Netflix. I love that show. I love that show too. <laughs> it's so good. This quote sticks with me. It's it's like it's like you hear this and you're like, this came from BoJack Horseman. They must have gotten it from somewhere else. But no, it's from BoJack Horseman. You know, it's funny when you look at someone through rose colored glasses. All the red flags just look like flags. Ooh. <laughs> <laughs> I feel attacked right now because I I have definitely had crushes like this. <laughs> yes, exactly. And this quote can be applied to like Hermione's situation or just like, you know, relationships in life in general. You, you miss the red flags when you're looking at looking through rose colored glasses. And that's what's happening here. Hermione's got a crush on Lockhart and is willing to ignore those red flags because she's looking through those rose colored glasses. So, you know, it happens. It happens to all of us. Yeah. I mean, I do think she is starting to pick up the scent a little bit uh, because 
the evidence is really starting to pile up, right? Even in the last couple of chapters with Lockhart not being able to properly diagnose Mrs. Norris, not bringing any creatures into class since the Pixies because, you know, that was a disaster, being able to hoodwink him into signing the permission slip and now removing Harry's bones in his arm. Like, I definitely think that she is onto him, but to the points raised, she doesn't want to admit it just yet. Yeah. It takes time sometimes to come to grips with reality. <laughs> Did Lockhart receive a talking to from Dumbledore after this? I mean, this is horrible what he did to Harry. Like, he, of course, should have been kicked out of the school right after this. But as we know, it's a bit difficult to find a DADA teacher. I just feel like this is unforgivable and something should have happened to, to Lockhart. Some sort of punishment. But I don't, I don't know what kind of agreement Dumbledore has with the professors. It certainly does seem that, you know, is Dumbledore at this match? Doesn't he come to to most all of them? I would think that when Dumbledore saw Lockhart approaching Harry with his broken arm on the field, he should have gone down there immediately to be right. present and prevent this from happening. Yeah, yeah. It, it begs the larger question, though, why Madame Pomfrey is not yeah. on the Quidditch pitch during matches. It seems like injury, especially when Harry's playing, uh, is inevitable, and you'd want the school nurse on site for any type of injury or emergency that comes up. And I agree with you, Laura. And where's Dumbledore? Where's McGonagall? Where's Snape even during this matchup? Why is Lockhart the one that comes to tend to him? It just security nightmare. It is safety it's nightmare. Medical nightmare. Medical nightmare. Well, somebody does come to tend to Harry. A little bit later here when he's spending the night in the hospital wing and it's not someone he's pleased to see. It's Dobby. Harry wakes up to Dobby sponging his forehead, uh, trying to take care of him. Harry's, of course, regrowing all of the bones in his arm. 33 bones, I think um, Madame Pomfrey notes. And this is a painful process. Um, you know, having your bones mended, no big deal. But regrowing them is nasty business, she says. And when Harry sees Dobby, it becomes apparent very quickly that Dobby was the one who blocked the barrier at platform nine and three quarters and the one who created the issue with the rogue bludger in that day's Quidditch match. So I want to do a quick check in here. Talk about Dobby. Uh, do we still find Dobby annoying at this stage in the story? I know this was a question we asked at the beginning of this book, um, I I find Dobby to be a tragic character, but I know there were people on the panel who had different opinions. So wanted to give give y'all a chance to speak for yourselves. I think, first of all, I think it's really sweet that he's sponging Harry's forehead and that's I how know. Harry wakes up. I think he gets a bad <laughs> rap and comes off as annoying in the books. But I would also argue that his portrayal in the movies with the dialogue being very similar is definitely more funny than it is annoying. Mm -hmm. um, and I think that's just down to good adaptation. And so it makes it more comedic and easier to handle. Um, and that's for, you know, on the actor and just all that timing. So I think I agree with you, Laura. I think it's more tragic than annoying. But I understand where people are coming from. So, yeah. My feeling about Dobby, though, in this moment is 
I really question his motivation because he's actually doing physical harm to Harry. And who knows what that bludger could have done. Clearly, it can break bones. Imagine if it hit Harry in the head. And so I think it's also important to keep in mind here, though, Dobby is only doing what he feels is best and what he knows is best. And what he has known for such a long period of time is physical abuse. And he's actually taking that and trying to apply it to this situation. And that's what's really kind of tragic about it because uh, he is trying to help, but he doesn't really know how to help in, in, in a safe, positive way. Because I'm sure we could all come up with a list of things that Dobby could have done to prevent Harry from going to Hogwarts that would have been much safer than blocking platform nine and three quarters and having a rogue bludger, you know, chase after him on the Quidditch pitch. So that's why, you know, I love Dobby as a character, but, but in this moment, the physical aspect of it really like, I I don't like that. Yeah, Mm -hmm. that's totally fair. I think you touched on an important point there, Micah, which is that Dobby's whole life has been subjugation and pain and he's still alive right? So he brings up the point to Harry, you know, I would rather see you have to go home because you're hurt than see you, than see something worse happen to you here. And he goes on to give a very heartfelt explanation telling Harry, if only you knew what you meant to house elves, um, things were so much worse when Hugh must not be named was in power and things are still pretty bad now, but if you think they're bad now, you're going to have to turn the dial up to 11 on that. And the reason that I want to make sure you're safe is because, you know, we see you as the thing that prevents the wizarding world from going backwards and from making all of our lives hell again. Well said. So it's that's that's where I think the tragedy aspect of of Dobby's character comes in. But speaking of tragedy, a petrified student is brought into the hospital wing at this moment. Dobby takes off and it turns out that it's Colin Creevy. He is the first human victim of the basilisk. And we later learn that being Hogwarts paparazzi actually saved his life. So, you know, annoying things can save your life. (laughs) Right. I mean, last week we were talking about is Colin annoying him being a fanboy did save his life. So maybe it is okay. <laughs> yeah. The tough part of this, though, is that Harry is immediately made to feel bad, though, because it's mentioned that Colin was likely trying to get up to the hospital wing to see Harry. Aww. And so Harry feels as if Colin being petrified is his fault. No. Did Colin try? Was he actively trying to take a picture of the basilisk? <laughs> That that's a question I've always had. Like, did he see it and pull the camera out, and that's when the basilisk turned and made eye contact? Because or maybe the basilisk did that thing where you know you kind of like jump in front of the camera to prank somebody. Like, but I mean, <laughs> but is Colin just walking around in the dark where no other students are with his camera in front of his face, just waiting for the moment to take a maybe, picture? Or- yeah, or maybe, yeah, I don't know. He's taking pictures of like the statues around the school, and then Basilisk was like, Surprise! What's up? What's up? <laughs> <laughs> well, at this point, 
you know, whether there was a basilisk photobomb or not. Um, <laughs> <laughs> Episode title. Yep. Oh, my God. Yes. Basilisk Literally, photobomb. Because the camera, the camera is burnt to a crisp on the inside. <laughs> there we yeah. go. There um, Dumbledore does confirm that the chamber is open again. And the question is brought up. Micah mentioned this earlier. Uh, not who, but how. So at this stage, we get the idea that Dumbledore must strongly suspect that it was it it was Tom Riddle the first time. Let's hope so. And yeah. he's probably sitting here thinking, "How is Tom Riddle in the school? <laughs> How is Voldemort yeah. in the school?" Well, Voldemort got in last time. Yeah. <laughs> Last year, I should say. Do you think that this is the first moment where he starts to suspect that it could be Horcruxes? Yeah. Because and like and then and then receiving the diary at the end of the book is really what solidifies that that theory for him. But this is like where it starts to brew. I yeah. think so. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And think again about it tying into, um, you know, Half-Blood Prince, mm-hmm. which is Horcrux heavy. So, yeah, I like it. All right. We're going to dive into some quick odds and ends here. Dobby mentions that his masters are careful not to hand him even a sock or else he would be free. (laughs) This comes into play later on in the book. Also want to mention, I joked before, maybe we should have a Harry thinks everything's over counts going on. Early in one of these chapters, I think uh, it was chapter nine, Harry thinks to himself, if Dumbledore believed Filch, that Harry was the one who petrified Mrs. Norris, he would be expelled for sure. So once again, Harry's like, it's all over. I'm about to be expelled. It comes up so often that it's pretty funny. Definitely. Uh, And then one thing that I thought was kind of funny uh, at the beginning of this chapter, we have um, Lockhart. We're told that Lockhart um, has Harry like act out scenes with him from his travels. It's mentioned that Harry actually at one point portrays a werewolf. And I just thought that was kind of funny because the next Defense Against the Dark Arts professor is in fact a werewolf. That is funny. Uh, And this is all happening in a Defense Against the Dark Arts classroom. So nice catch. Take that for what you will. But no, it's a good that's a good observation. No, it's it's a nice nod for sure. That is chapters 9 and 10 of Chamber of Secrets. If you have any feedback about today's episode, you can send an owl to mugglecast.gmail.com or use the contact form on mugglecast.com to send a voice message, record it using the voice memo app on your phone, and then email us that file. Or you can use our phone number, which is 192030Muggle. That's 192068-4453. And now it's time for MVP of the Week. I'm going to be biased here and give it to Dobby. I love Dobby. He does a lot of damage, but he is ultimately the key to Harry figuring out what is going on here. Dobby is the character that really sets everything into motion in this story. And he ultimately does succeed in keeping Harry safe. So you got to give it to him. I'm going to give it to Hot Chocolate, which... uh was why Dumbledore was coming down stairs and <laughs> was able to help out with Colin Creevy being petrified. So my MVP of the week is a nice cup of hot cocoa for Albus. Love Extra it. points for creativity there, Micah. That's great. <laughs> 
I'm going to give it to Bins for breaking out of his boring history lessons and finally giving the students some compelling and valuable information. Wasn't that exciting, Bins? The students woke up and paid attention. And to sort of follow up on what Andrew said, I'm going to give it to Chapter 9, Writings on the Wall, um, for the introductions to new characters like Myrtle and all the exposition that Bins was able to provide about the founders of the school and the Chamber of Secrets. Thank you, Alyssa, for awarding a most valuable chapter. We don't do that enough. We really don't. All right. Well, even though Eric isn't here this week, Quizage does continue with host Micah T. All right. Last week's Quizage question was, what curse does Lockhart say was probably performed on Mrs. Norris? And the correct answer to that question was the transmorgriffian torture. Of course, Lockhart was wrong, but that is the <laughs> correct quizage answer. And we had a number of listeners uh, submit the correct answer, including Hollow Wolf. Crookshanks was in Hermione's bag the whole time. <laughs> Slytherin from Sydney, Australia. Elizabeth K. At least Filch doesn't have to clean the litter box for a few weeks. <laughs> oh, my God. Wow. Uh, he who must Bort be named, uh, Forrest the 10-year-old, Lizzie Lovegood, Humpty Dumble sat on an astronomy tower, <laughs> uh, Artemis Fido Jr. the second, Unicorn Hair Supplier, Hufflepuff from Ohio, Dumbledore's Sock Knitter, Sir Properly Decapitated Podmore, Tonks fan forever, <laughs> Lockhart's curlers, Manchester muggle, you're a quizzard, Harry, the remote always buried in my couch, buff daddy, and LC. So thank you, everybody who submitted the correct quizage answer. Oh, these names. I it's one of the delights, honestly, of recording this show is hearing all of the quizage submission names i love it truly truly <laughs> next week's quizage question during the dueling club who does snape pair hermione with and of course you can submit your answers over on mugglecast.com just click on quizage there's much more MuggleCast waiting for you, the listener, on our Patreon. You can pledge now at patreon.com slash MuggleCast to receive instant access to things like bonus MuggleCast. We just recorded a new one last week about recent Pottermore digital sales, and they, they decreased last year, so we discussed why that was. We're going to do another bonus MuggleCast, because remember, we're now doing two of these a month next week, and we're going to talk about some new developments concerning Hogwarts Legacy. Some pretty big names are uh, doing voice work for the game, and we learned about a couple of the characters, but there's more at our Patreon. There's uh, access to our recording studio. There's early access to each new episode of MuggleCast, ad-free MuggleCast, all kinds of things. So check it out at patreon.com slash MuggleCast. Also have to mention the physical gift and also the opportunity to co-host MuggleCast just like Alyssa did today. Alyssa, thanks for joining us. You did awesome. Thank you. Uh, thank you for having me on. I had a lot of fun. Good. You are so welcome. A couple other reminders. Make sure you're following the show for free in your favorite podcast app so you never miss an episode. And leave us a review if they allow you to. Just looking at a couple of the reviews, by the way, 
Um, first of all, I love all the reviews, but some people rave about the show, then give it one star. Uh, <laughs> Are they giving it one star because they're like calling it number one? Give us five stars, folks. We need five stars when you're raving about the show. <laughs> I, I think maybe that's a little bit of like, a, they think that by giving it one, to your point, like they're giving it the top mark, but no, we need right. all five. We need five. So I need to start saying, please give us a five star review if you like the show. <laughs> At least four. <laughs> Nothing less than five stars is acceptable. No, no. I, I don't want to. We appreciate the honest feedback. I used to I used to say that on actually I used to say it on Game of Thrones um, and have a threat tied to Game of Thrones along with saying nothing less than five stars is acceptable. So that's where that came from. But um, I see. I'm happy to come up with Harry Potter threats if you want. You should. Well, I mean, <laughs> Game of Thrones is violent, so that works. I don't know if we need to get violence here on Michaelcast. <laughs> that's true. Please, please leave us a nice. Rate and review. Or else you will face an unforgivable curse. Don't make us open the Chamber of Secrets. Or hurl bludgers at you. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, great. Now somebody's going to report us to Apple. They're threatening me if I don't give them a positive (laughs) review. (laughs) Anyway, we appreciate the support, whether it's through Patreon, through Apple Podcasts, through telling a friend, etc. Thank you, everybody, so much for your support. And that does it for this week's episode of MuggleCast. Thank you so much for listening. I'm Andrew. I'm Micah. I'm Laura. And I'm Alyssa. Bye, everybody. Bye, y'all. Bye. Bye.